divorce become a reality and you are asking yourself, now what? If you have questions about your new life, you're in the right place. Her Divorce Source with Leah Jones is the go-to podcast for women before, during, and after a divorce. Join me, Leah Jones, a certified divorce financial analyst at Hightower Bethesda, as I help you envision and create a new life that's full of possibilities, empowerment, and freedom. I'll tackle your concerns about lifestyle and money, giving you practical guidance you can use right away. Now let's get started. Today's guest, Allison Dagney, goes by an alias because her divorce from a narcissist was so traumatic and to protect both herself and her children. Divorce is never easy, but divorcing a narcissist poses additional challenges and things you need to be aware of as you make your way through the process. Allison wrote a book about her story called When Tears Leave Scars, a true story of triumph over emotional abuse, and is here today to share her story and wisdom with our listeners. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here and so happy to share my story. Allison, while I am very much not happy that you had to go through what you had to go through, I am very excited that we're able to have this opportunity to share what you went through with our listeners and help. And I know that you feel equally the same way about that. So what I'd love to do is just start with with that, your story. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I can totally relate to what you're saying. No one wants to hear that someone had to go through something traumatic or something really difficult in their life. But ultimately, I came out on the other side in a very good position. I was able to take a very difficult time of my life, 20 years of my adult life, really, and turn it into something where I can help other people. I'm an author. I wrote the book, When Tears Leave Scars. And it's a memoir. It's a true story of my life from the time I met my now ex-husband. But back then, he was my boyfriend at 19. We were married for about 17 years, and we had three children together. I've become a domestic abuse awareness advocate because of that. And um, the time that I spent in this abusive relationship really opened my eyes to the fact that so many people, women and men alike, are struggling with this type of thing, and they don't even know or realize. So, really, I what I'm trying to do is be a voice for the voiceless. I want to provide hope and inspiration and validation to people that you're not alone. I've received a lot of feedback about this on my book because sometimes people don't even know that they're going through it, and some people have no idea what it even is. And that was me. When I first met my, who is now my ex-husband, and I'll call him my abuser, his name is Nick in the book, and that is also a name that has been changed, not to protect him, but to protect me and my children. I am not a therapist. I do not have any psychological training or any legal background or anything like that. I'm just a survivor. And I believe, based on what I've learned and my experience of the 20 years I was with this person, that he is a covert narcissist. I started out in a relationship that was full of love bombing, and it was a wonderful relationship at the beginning, which eventually turned into something extremely damaging to my soul and to who who I was. I lost myself and I didn't know who I was. By the time that I was exiting the the marriage to him, I, I, I didn't even know who I was. I was a shell of myself. And a lot of people experience this and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing and trying to raise awareness, wrote my book, and I'm trying to get it out there to try to help people. 
So I want to, I know this is a term I've heard you use, and I just want to clarify for our listeners. Talk, Talk to me, what does love bombing mean? Okay, so love bombing is something that most people really don't don't know, understand. Love bombing is when you enter into a relationship, and this could be a relationship romantically, it could be a friendship, it could be a, a work situation. Love bombing is really when you you meet someone and they almost mirror you. Oh my gosh, we have so much in common. Look, I love this and so do you. And you believe this and so do I. And oh, that's your political stance. That's mine too. Everything is kind of mirrored back to you. That's one piece of love bombing. Another piece of love bombing is the 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 speed at which the relationship progresses. It's usually very quick. It's usually within just weeks to, I mean, sometimes days, um, weeks, months type of progression of the relationship where they want to be with you 24-7. They want to take you out and do wonderful things for you. They want to buy you presents. They want to dote on you, show you off to their friends. It's really kind of that fairy tale experience that most people think about when you think about like Disney movies and things like that. It's that whirlwind of love and romance and sweeping you off your feet and riding you off into the sunset. That's that's what love bombing is. I even teach my children about what love bombing is because I don't want them to end up in a situation where they think that this is the start of a healthy relationship. Love bombing is really intentional. It's to try to to trick you really into thinking that you are this wonderful, and and maybe you are this wonderful person, but that they believe for you to be this perfect person that they will never hurt, that they will never do anything bad to, that nothing could ever come between you. And it's really a lot of times the start of a toxic relationship. That's what love bombing is. And, and would I be accurate in saying the mirroring of like, oh, your political belief is this and that's mine Mm -hmm. is, is insincere. Like it's not most of the time. Yes. There may be times where it is sincere. There may be times when you just, you really do have a connection with someone and you do share a lot of the same traits or the same beliefs or the same morals, interests, things like that. That I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but a lot of times when you're being love bombed, it will be insincere. And the fact that they just tell you that just so that you're like, oh, it's that similar to me effect. Oh, this person is like me. I can trust this person. I like this person. They like me. I don't have anything to fear. A lot of times, if you if you have somebody and you have complete opposite stances or opinions or beliefs or anything like that, a lot of times it can be create distance between you. So this is intended to, to, to remove that distance and bring you closer. Right. Let your guard down. So, Absolutely. So I think this is a great segue into... I think a lot of people might ask themselves this question. Am I in a relationship with a narcissist? Um, <laughs> uh-huh. And and how do you know okay. if you are or are not in a relationship? <laughs> what are the signs? This is, and this was my problem because I didn't even know what a narcissist was, right? I think in now today's time, people are starting to hear the word more. They're starting to understand it's a personality disorder and that affects people in a negative way. There, There is something called the DSM-5. And if you Google that or look it up, it will give you lots and lots of traits of what a person with narcissism would have. There are nine of these traits. And I believe you only have to have five in order to, to be considered like on the spectrum, like, like have high narcissism. Some of those traits are like, let's just say grandiosity. You, you expect superior treatment from other people. 
fantasies of power, success, intelligence, wealth, attractiveness, anything like that, where they just kind of ruminate on those things and just think about them a lot. My ex did this a lot about money. He was really quite obsessed with it. Self-perception, like that your self-perception of you is that you are unique or that you are superior or you are deserving of better treatment than other people. Um, that kind of constant need for admiration, a sense of entitlement, and, you know, the other people should obey you or do what you think is best or what you feel like they should do. Uh, the other things would, the, the highest thing for me, the biggest thing for me is little or no empathy. When someone has a hard time empathizing with other people, that's a really big red flag for narcissism envious jealousy of other people or other people's success. Like if you were to share your, you know, successes and they, they kind of get jealous or they kind of look at you like, well, you don't deserve that. And pompous, arrogant types of behaviors. And like I said, there are nine on this particular chart for, it's a psychological chart that they use to diagnose. So obviously I can't diagnose someone because I'm not a therapist or, or a psychologist, but you can look at each of these things and say, oh my gosh, yeah, they tick that box, that box, that box, that box, that box, you kind of go down the line. And when you start doing research and you understand about narcissism, it becomes very glaring. The fog starts to lift and you start to see. So if you were ever to think you might be in a relationship with a narcissist, it would be good to start here. It would be good to start in this particular um, DSM-5 and look at this. And then if you're like, well, because sometimes I get jealous of people or sometimes I might think I'm special, but it's not, a, it's kind of, kind of a scale. You have to look at it like a scale. They have like a one to 10 scale. If you have a few narcissistic traits, you might be low on that scale. It might be a one or two or a three. Someone who's really, really abusive narcissist would be seven, eight, nine, ten. Those are the, there's, a, it's a scale. So it's not like a hard and fast rule, like, oh, yes, this person is definitely a narcissist. Oh, this person is definitely a narcissist. You actually, you kind of have to judge um, the person, their behavior, the things that they're doing. And one thing, Leah, that I want to make sure that everybody knows is that narcissism, how do, how do I put this? It's not really about the labels. That's so important that people don't get caught up in the labels because for me, domestic abuse is abuse, is emotional abuse, financial abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse, any type of abuse that you have. If someone is not treating you in a good way, that's abuse. So if this person only has a couple traits of narcissism, but they're still constantly gaslighting you or constantly love, love bombing you and then keeping you in that cycle of discard and devalue and love bombing, then what happens is you're in an abusive relationship. So yes, it's important to know because when you're dealing with a narcissist, there are things that you can do to help yourself and things that you can do to kind of mitigate that. So that's really where I would start. Gosh, so many good follow-up questions from everything <laughs> that you just said. Um, I, 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 where do I, where do I get started? Well, let's start with the easy one, which okay. is again, just clarifying a term. Okay. Gaslighting is okay. another term that you use. Talk yeah. to me. What does that mean? Okay. So gaslighting, and I didn't know what gaslighting was for the longest time. I learned this later. Um, is there was an old movie and I can't remember what year it was even, but it was called The Gaslight. Basically, this woman was in a relationship with her husband and I think every day she would come down the stairs and either she turned it on or she turned it, maybe she turned it on or she turned it off, but her husband kept telling her that she didn't do whatever it was that she thought she did. So, 
what happened was this term gaslighting came about because it's you are being led to believe something that wasn't true based on someone else's perception. I'm not sure how to even how to even describe it, but let me just give an example. So if someone tells you that you are a bad person, constantly tells you, telling you you're a bad person, you know you're not a bad person, but then they'll give you examples and point out things that make you believe that you're a bad person. Then all of a sudden, you start questioning yourself. Well, maybe I am a bad person. Well, yeah, I did do that that one time. So yeah, gosh, maybe. And then what happens is you start to lose your self-worth. You start to question yourself. You start to question your sanity in the example of the gaslight. I mean, I have plenty of examples that I could give where my ex-husband gaslit me mentally as well as situationally. I'd leave my ring out, my wedding ring when I would wash my hands. And then the next day I'd come back and it wouldn't be on the sink anymore. And I would panic. My my wedding ring is missing. Did I lose it down the sink? Did I misplace it? Where did it go? Well, ultimately what happened was he was upset that I had left my ring sitting on the sink. So instead of confronting me about it and saying, hey, could you not put this here? It could go down the drain, down the disposal, like put it where it goes. Like I'm worried about your, your wedding ring. No, he moved it and hid it for a week and sent me on a wild goose chase, panicking, looking for it and told me that I had misplaced it. So gaslighting is really just an intentional way to get you to question yourself. And what happens kind of naturally with that is that you rely on your abuser. You're like, oh, can you help me remember this? Because I don't remember. And what really happened? And do you know where I, I put this? And you're constantly relying on someone else. And that you, that's usually the narcissistic abuser. And that's their goal. Got it. I think that's a really good illustration of how this person is trying to maintain control and power. And I think you had said you really felt like you lost yourself. And, and, that, and that was happening from actions like that. And it took a while to put everything together and say, oh my gosh, this is what is causing that because you could have just blamed yourself. And I am sure Mm -hmm. that that's what a lot of women do because that's what we do anyways. We don't need anyone to help us do that. (laughs) We need need people to help us not do that because we innately do that ourselves. I always tell people, I'm like, I'm the hardest critic of myself. I really don't, you know, need any um, criticism (laughs) because believe me, like I'm going to go down that path with myself anyways. That is also a tendency. Of, of a perfectionist. I want to go back to, because I, I, there were some key points about the narcissism and how you diagnose that, or at least how you start to, to think, how you start to identify, could this be what my spouse is? Now, there are so many other illnesses out there, right? I mean, bipolar, depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. And so... I think you you made a really uh, key point. You made two key points. So one is it's it really depends on what spectrum you are. A borderline narcissist, women might be okay with that, right? Because you have confidence and it's not manifesting itself in a really negative way. But if it is on a spectrum where this person is asserting control over you and dominance and control over money, et cetera, then that's something that that you have to question whether that makes sense for you or not to be in that relationship. And it's, it's really the same thing with any illness, right? Is what is the spectrum? Is it uh, a low spectrum type of diagnosis? Is it a high spectrum? And really at the end of the day, you know, as you mentioned, you're not a therapist, so you can't really diagnose that. All you can do is try to educate yourself about it. And then, then you can talk to your spouse and see if they are willing 
to go see a therapist and get a professional designation. But from what I have heard from talking to, to lots of women about this is that a lot of a lot of spouses refuse that yeah. help. I think that's key is like, what is it? What level, what spectrum is it? And then, and this is probably the most important piece is, can it be helped? <sighs> yeah. Is this something that love is for marriage is forever and you're through sickness and health. And so I think a lot of women would think to themselves, well, if my husband's a little sick, then I, I want to help. And here's where I want to talk to you a little bit, because uh, I know there is a difference in some of these illnesses, it can be helped and in others, it can't. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. I really love to talk about this because the thing about narcissism is that because they have such a refusal to look within, they do not self-reflect. This is something that distinguishes a narcissist from non-narcissist. They, they literally cannot look within themselves. And I don't believe it's because partly because they can't, but also partly because they don't want to. They don't want to see what's really in there. A lot of the things on the DSM-5 show that these, these types of people have this sense of superiority, grandiosity, but it's my personal belief that with inside of a narcissist, there's self-loathing, that they really don't love themselves, that they really truly loathe themselves. And what, what I believe is that the grandiosity, the superiority, the outward shows, displays of those types of things are a mask, that they are to pretend that they are something that they are not, that they don't want to look at themselves. So when you talk about, oh, hey, maybe you know my spouse has these traits, maybe we should go talk to a therapist. Usually, more often than not, the narcissist is going to refuse because they don't see anything wrong with themselves. They think you are the problem. They think you have the work to do. And that was the case in my situation. My ex-husband never went to therapy with me ever, except for probably three months before I ended up divorcing him. And and that was only because I think he thought I was going to divorce him. He, well, he wasn't sure. And I think he just got desperate to lose me at that point because I was a, a really, I, mean, I could talk about this later, but a supply for him to feel better. Basically, when you're talking about, can it be helped and can we fix them? And should we go to a therapist and try to get this worked out? Most of the time, a real true narcissist is going to refuse. They're going to say, absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with me. You need help. You go get it. You're the crazy one. You're the one with emotional problems. You're the one that needs to help. You go get it. They don't want to face those types of things. And many times, I mean, there are instances of, of narcissists who go get therapy. There are actually people who are self-proclaimed narcissists and know that they are, and they are out there. I don't like to follow them because I feel like that's just giving them what they want. That's just giving them extra affirmation. That, and I, I'm not in the business of doing that. It's always my opinion if someone says to me, oh my gosh, I think my, my, my boyfriend or my girlfriend is a narcissist, I would say I would never tell them. I would never tell them that you think that. And the reason why, and a lot of people, a lot of people will say, oh my gosh, I did it and I, I should have never done it. Because what happens inadvertently is that the narcissist ends up, well, one, they deny it, but then they, they kind of sort of change their tactics a little bit and then they, the abuse can become worse. So I really don't recommend that. I, I, like anybody can do whatever they want to do, but from the work that I do trying to raise, raise awareness, I never recommend 
doing that. If that person feels that they have any, it's kind of like when you're dealing with a, like a drug addict or somebody who has like a dependency issue, they have to help themselves. They have to go do it. They, you can't force someone to go to AA meetings. You can't force someone to get help for their problem. And that's the same way with narcissism. I look at them sort of like heroin addicts and all they're trying to do is get that supply. And the supply is usually the person that they're abusing. So that's my opinion on it. I don't believe that narcissism is really ever something that can be fixed. That's my personal opinion. You'll see different opinions about that out there. But I also don't like to get into codependency and things like that. So if if it's about, hey, I've got this person in my life and they're not treating me right and they're abusing me. I'm not going to, I'm not trying to fix that person. I got to work on me. I'm going to try to fix me and I can set good boundaries and I can deal with, uh, with this person at an arm's length or however I have to, but I'm not, I can't fix you. So that's how, that's how I look at it. Absolutely. I, I want to echo that point. You can't fix someone. You can only control your own actions, despite what someone might make you feel or what they might say to you. But I 100% agree with, with that. Now, if you can control your actions in such a way that you're comfortable with their relationship and you don't lose yourself, then that's okay, right? And, and I think people do that in relationships all the time. But when it becomes a situation like what you're describing, where you're losing yourself and you're actually suffering for abuse, and, but you're making excuses for it, then that's not okay. So my next question is, how, how did you hit rock bottom? How did you hit rock bottom, so to speak? And I don't know if it was one thing or if it was just a combination of things that finally made you say, you know what, this is it. So if you could share that. Sure. You know, there actually was a point in my marriage where there was so much criticism. And I, you had said before, you know, I'm a biggest critic and I'm always the same. Like I, I would criticize myself. I don't need somebody to tell me how I chew my food and how I, where I do the laundry is wrong. Like everything I did was wrong to him. So over time, you know, this becomes just this like really exhausting type of way to live. And what I remember is saying to him one day, how do you, how are you even happy? Like, how do you even like being around me? Like in being in this marriage, like, it seems like you would want to divorce me because you act like you hate me. Like you, like, how could you even be happy? That was really, really eye-opening to me because I, I was thinking of it from his perspective. Like you criticize everything I do in a manner that makes me feel like completely worthless. So how could you possibly be happy? One day I sat down and I wrote a list of all of the things that he complained about, about me. And it was like, like maybe four or five pages long. It was, it was long. And it was probably not even everything I could think of. It was like on a legal pad, like a yellow legal pad. And I remember after I, after I wrote it, I read it and I thought, oh my gosh, like, this is not okay. Like, this is not okay. And I was just at this point in my life where I felt extremely just sad and lost and just really, really, really unhappy in the state of my life. I just really was unhappy. And obviously, I tell my whole story in the book from the time I was 19 to the time that I escaped. So you can read about that. And I don't want to ruin the story in case anybody would like to read it. But I came to the realization after, even after I wrote that, someone informed me of narcissism. Someone let me know that this is emotional abuse. And I had no idea. 
But when you ask if there was that point, yeah, and I recommend this to people. I'm like, if you're struggling in your relationships, write down all the things the person complains about you. Write down all the things that they seem to hate about you. Write it down and then look at it because when it's out on paper, it's really, really, really eye-opening. It's one thing to kind of internalize it and like, oh, he complains about me. Oh, she complains about me. But to actually see it in your own words on paper is really, really, really eye-opening. Well, and then I'd be curious once you flip through all the pages mm-hmm. of stuff that they complain about you, mm-hmm. I'd be curious if you then start a page that says things that I love about this person. Right. <laughs> I yeah. can't imagine Yeah, that list would be very long. And that's a really good idea. I mean, honestly, it is a good idea. And I actually, I, I recently wrote a blog post on my website about the fact that I, I never loved him. And it really kind of ties into what you're just saying, because I didn't write it back then, but years later I wrote it because when I look at what the truth of what he showed me, I was kind of mystified by the the love bombing at the beginning. But then eventually he did show me who he was. He showed me that he lied. He showed me that he manipulated. He showed me that he gaslit. He showed me that he made fun of people. He showed me that he was unwilling to help people and had no empathy. Like he showed me those things and I overlooked him. I, I think I had this feeling that I wanted to be loved and I wanted to have what we had at the beginning and why couldn't things just be like that? And I held onto that so tightly. But ultimately, really, I think if I wrote down all the things about him, like there wasn't very many lovable things because he didn't show me the lovable things except for in the love bombing stage. And really what he was showing me was me. He was showing me myself. He was showing me all the things about me that that I really valued and the things that I liked in the mirroring part of it. So that's a really good observation that you just said. I love it. Yeah. Well, and you guys also had kids together and, and mm-hmm. we're going to explore that because yeah. that obviously, you know, complicates things, but all right. So you get to this point where you're like, mm-hmm. this is just done. This is done mm-hmm. for me. Yep. I think you had such a methodical, thoughtful process then of how you would get out. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love, I'd love you to just kind of walk through some of the things that you'd recommend because this is a challenging situation. You can't just go up to this person and say, you know what, ready to get divorced. Let's just sign the paperwork. That is Absolutely. not going to work out very well. So, so no. talk to us about that. I provide lots of information about this on my website too. So if anybody would ever need to go back and reference things that you have to deal with when you're dealing with a narcissist is if they figure out that you're ready to leave, they're going to freak out. And the reason why is because they're holding on to you so tightly because you give them something. You, it's not that they love you or that they care about you. I don't actually believe that narcissists are capable of love, not even loving their children. They can't love themselves. They can't love you. They can't even love their kids. What ultimately happens is they feel this really sense of panic. And so if you think about it, like, like a heroin addict, this person, you know, they go, they get their supply from their drug dealer and they feel really good after they have that hit when that hit wears off, they've got to get it again and then again and again and again. So it's kind of like addiction, right? And then what happens is if you say, oh, nope, I'm never, I'm never letting you have this supply again. You don't get it. What happens to that drug addict? They go crazy. They lose it. They try to go find it somewhere else. They might scream, cry. They get really upset, really emotional. They're like in petulant children. I mean, seriously, petulant children. And what happens during that time? And that's why you want to try to avoid that. And so when I was on the verge of leaving, I did a lot of preparation and a lot of planning. I didn't let him know. I was very quiet and secretive and I was very um, fake, I guess is the best word I could put it, because I didn't want him really to know what my plans were. So I 
we still did our same routine. We'd still watch TV before bed and come home and have dinner after work and, you know, all those types of things. So I tried to maintain the same routine and not alert him. It's hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. But when you're doing this and during this time, what, what I did was I copied all important documents, all financial records, all birth certificates, so security cards. I got in touch with my attorneys. I got in touch with a therapist. Anytime he was away, I was working. I was working on all of this. I, I really was slacking on other areas because I really spent most of my time trying to create a safe exit for myself. So the other thing is, and, and I'll just put this as a disclaimer, if you live with a narcissist um, and you share Wi-Fi, when you're searching, turn it off. Turn it off when you're searching for attorneys. Turn it off when you're searching for therapists. Turn it off when you're searching for narcissism traits and things like that. Just search using your, your LTE, your data, because I don't put anything past them. And a lot of times narcissists will track you. They will... They will track your phone. They will watch where you're going. They could stalk you. They could have other people watching you and reporting back to them. I mean, I even have my own children were reporting back to the narcissist about my behaviors. And he, he would reward them when they would do that. Planning is key. Planning is really, really important. A lot of people say, oh, you're so courageous because you got out. Well, yeah, sort of because I did something that was really scary and I did it even though I was scared. So yes, it is courage, but it's also about planning because if you don't have a plan, how are you going to just jump ship? Now, other disclaimer, if you are feeling like you are in imminent danger, that this person is an explosive rage and is going to potentially harm you or your children, you, can, you don't have time to plan. You just need to get out, go to a domestic violence shelter, call the police, go to a friend's house, whatever you have to do. But in my case, um, the narcissist in my life, because he was a covert narcissist and covert means they're very sneaky and they fly under the radar and it's hard to detect. I had to, I had to plan and planning was the best thing for me at that time. So anybody, anybody who's in a situation like this kind of needs to really determine what's best for them based on their individual circumstances. So all of those things, the planning, the planning is a huge piece. And it definitely was a huge piece for me to, to, to make a safe escape. Well, as a financial planner, mm -hmm. I uh, definitely always encourage a plan if you can do it safely. Mm -hmm. Now, you had brought up some really great points because your husband controlled the money. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of women are in this situation. So what are some things you can do? It makes it harder, but what are some things you can do? One thing that is really really, really important for people to understand, especially if your particular narcissist is, well, actually probably any narcissist. I mean, some have money, some don't. Some are really responsible, some aren't. It's not kind of a one size fits all. But a lot of times narcissists, once they figure out that you're on the verge of leaving, will start doing things that are really deceitful, like hiding assets, moving money around, withholding money. A lot of times in financial abuse situations, and, and, and it happened with me too, was threatening to to cut you off financially, inspecting the things that you buy, watching your purchases really carefully, giving you budgets to, to adhere to that maybe are really unrealistic. Like, oh, here's $100. This is the cash that you get to go to the grocery store with once a week, like unrealistic for a family of five. So one thing that, that I really, really think is important to do is if you can reach out to somebody that is a 
financial person, a financial uh, planner, someone who maybe, even if it's just somebody that you know personally that you don't employ, maybe it's just someone that is in your neighborhood or someone you trust, a friend, a family member that knows about these types of things. Because most of the time when you're in an abusive type of situation, you're not privy to the finances. I was told a lot that I, I didn't have the understanding or I wouldn't get it or it's too complex or you just worry about the kids and this and I'll worry about that. So when you're in a situation like that, it can be very scary because a lot of times, especially women, if the men is in, if the man is in control of the money, then they feel like their, their hands are tied and they can't leave. And they don't, ha I'm not going to have any money. I'm not going to have anywhere to go. Like, how can I leave? So things that I would suggest is one, getting in touch with somebody who can help you. Even if it's like your accountant or something. And you'd have to let them know specifically like, hey, this is a situation that I'm in. I really need some advice. I really need some help. Install a professional if you can. If you can't and you can't get a hold of a professional, then you need to find a way to get into all of your financial documents. You need to find a way to get into any sort of bank accounts that you can print off everything that you can. I mean, as far back as you can, if you have copies of old checks um, that were written years and years, take, take everything, get everything you can get. Even if you just have to take a copy of it, I, I suggest get a hold of everything financially, your mortgage paperwork, any loans, any debt, any anything like that. Because what happens is if you have documents of those for and, and they're dated, then when it's time to go through the divorce, you have all that proof. You have all of that already, but they can manipulate that later. So if you don't get a hold of it up front, then it can be manipulated on the back end by the narcissist and things like that were happening to me. Right. So before this person knows you're able to get access to information that is going to give you what you need versus afterwards, things might have been yes. manipulated. Talk to me too about... Because I know this is would, would give women peace of mind that might be thinking about this. And I know it really helped you in your situation. And that was you, the use of status quo through oh, your yeah. attorney. Oh, yeah. that's I, I totally forgot to mention that. In, in the state that I'm in, and I'm not sure about every state, but I would always mention to an attorney because that is going to be part of your planning is reaching out to an attorney is asking to be put on status quo immediately upon separation. And usually what that means is that you operate financially how you always have. So if you've had access to bank accounts, you still do. If you had access to credit cards, you still do. If you if he paid all the bills, he still pays all the bills. All of that stuff basically just says until we get the divorce finalized and we're in the separation stage, we want everything to stay the same financially. And that protects you because sometimes people will up and leave and then they file for divorce and that never gets brought up and they have no money and their ex is, well, their soon to be ex is not helping them. They're not providing for them and you're completely left desolate and on your own. So always ask about that. And if it's, if it's possible in your state, then your attorney should be willing to, to recommend that. Great. Yeah. I think that's a really important concept for women to be aware of is mm -hmm. that once that is in place, everything is looked at. The courts right. are looking at everything. So it's not mm -hmm. so easy to just completely cut you off, which I think is probably a big fear that people have. You also had some really good suggestions on housing, right? Because mm -hmm. your, your, your goal is going to be to probably get out of that house if you mm -hmm. can, because yep. most likely since you want it, that person's yep. not going to leave. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's hard to get a narcissist to leave. I mean, usually the the situation is you escape. Now, there are situations where the narcissist will discard you. And that happens a lot where they just get tired of dealing with you. They they do, they get bored. They don't want to um they don't want to play with their toy anymore. They found someone else. They may have moved on to another relationship that they that they've been involved with and they're getting more supply from them. So they may just up and leave. But if that's not the case for you, and you, that would be a great scenario for most people if, if the narcissist just exited their life uh, on their own. But if that's not the case for you, then housing is really going to be important. Definitely have to talk to your attorney about this too, because for example, in my situation, I had three children and there were stipulations about where I could live. I had to have enough bedrooms for my kids. I had to have similar housing to what I was used to or what they were used to living in. Now, the, the good thing about that was because we were on staff status quo, even though I didn't work outside of the home, the the money that I used to pay rent to live in this house came from our joint money. So if that weren't possible, I might've ended up living with a family member. And I don't even know if I would have had somebody who would have enough room for us to live. So that's really important to make sure that, that you line up housing that's appropriate and that's legal because there are stipulations and you don't want to get yourself in a position where you're living in a house and then the narcissist finds out that, oh, you only have two bedrooms, but we've got four kids. That's not enough for you and the four kids. And then all of a sudden you have to move or you break your lease or something like that. So it's really important to know those things before you end up in a position where you might have to move or have to you know uproot your kids again. I want to now pivot to the kids thing because... This is so difficult, uh, just if it's you and your spouse, but now you have kids. And in this case, you have young kids. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. How do you now... And and you can really talk about it from any regard, kind of starting with like going through the process. And then now that you are through the process, how you continue to keep their kind of emotional sanity. Okay. So my kids, when I escaped, were... They were seven, nine, and eleven, so they were they were pretty young, but they were old enough to understand that mommy and daddy were getting divorced. They knew what divorce was. I had to tread very carefully. My kids initially blamed me. They initially said I ruined their lives. They were distraught. They were heartbroken. That in turn made me feel heartbroken. It also it also made me wonder if I had made the right decision because you've got these three little people who are crying and sad and upset that their parents are divorcing and they can't really understand. And I couldn't say to them, your dad's a narcissist and he's abusing me and I can't be married to him anymore. They're not going to understand that nor, that, nor should they, they have to even hear those types of things. From the beginning, what I did literally was just I took all of the bullets from them. I took all of the criticism. I took all of it. I had to. I, I couldn't do anything else. I, I'm sorry. I, I I know you. I know this is hard for you. It's not easy for me either. And they end up starting to see. I think at least my kids did on their own what was going on. One thing I like to tell people is I never lie to my children when it comes to what happened to me. So if my kids were to ask me, "Why did you divorce Dad? Why? Why did you leave?" I said because he didn't treat me right because he was not a good person to me. I don't say he doesn't treat you right or he I let them make their own judgments about their their own dad because I'm not them and they're not me and he treats me differently than he treats them. So I always I try to empathize with them. 
but I'm always honest with them. I don't ever smear their dad or say, your dad's a horrible person or your dad is evil or your dad, which I believe all of those things, but I don't tell my kids that. I don't want my kids to, to be influenced by the way he treated me. But if they say, gosh, mom, dad said this to me and it just really was hurtful. And I can say, I can understand that because that kind of thing happened to me too. I understand where you're coming from and empathize with them. There's two things. I never smear and I always tell the truth. A lot of people find that a hard line to, to straddle because especially if you've been hurt really deeply by someone, but it's really important not to drag the kids into the middle of a situation like that, in my opinion. And I've, I've had therapy for the last four years for every single week. Like, and I talk to my therapist about this kind of stuff. And it's really, really important, I think, to raise up healthy children mentally and emotionally to to make sure that you're honest and make sure that you're not talking bad about the other parent. Allison, I I think you are so wise in your guidance to the kids because everything you said it's it sounds easy and it sounds like the right thing to do and it is, but it's not easy to do. No. And especially when there's so much hurt and pain and emotion and I think naturally mothers always want their kids to side with them. And then now you're taking the resentment that your kids have. Mm -hmm. And all I can say about this, and I know you have seen it, is that at the time, kids don't understand it, especially Mm -hmm. if they're younger, but they will. There will be a reckoning where they will come to you and they will say, I'm sorry. Right. I'm sorry you had to go through that. I see what it is about my father. I still love him, Mm -hmm. but I see what it is and I see why it's difficult. And it's going to shape them too in in different ways. So again, the the role of a mom is always taking the higher ground and being the bigger person and, and trying to raise your kids. I think you're guidance here is invaluable. Allison, thank you so much. You have you have honestly given some of the most candid and inspirational advice starting from just talking a little bit about your story to hitting rock bottom, then the process for getting out and how to protect your kids. So I think you've given so much good content to our listeners. And so we're going to make sure that they have all your information because I know you've got more to give. I know you've got articles and you blog and you post and you're very inspirational and you're taking this awful thing that happened to you and you're trying to help other people, which is quite frankly, the best thing you can do with it. So you know, I know you've got a book, you've got your own website, and then you also are very active on Instagram. So we'll make sure that we have all those references for people that are looking to connect with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I would love to just say one last thing. This is just my sign off. Don't ever give up. That That's the best advice I could give to anyone when you're dealing with somebody like this. Don't ever give up. There are people out there who will help you and there are resources and connect with me. You can even jump into my, my instant messages or however you need to reach me. I'm happy to help. Thank you, Allison. Leah, how can people reach you? You can email me at leah.jones at hightoweradvisors with an S.com. And to make sure you don't miss any episode of Her Divorce Source with Leah Jones, please subscribe to this podcast and, of course, share with friends and family. Thank you for listening to Her Divorce Source with Leah Jones from Hightower Bethesda. Don't forget to follow the podcast to be notified whenever a new episode is released. 
Hightower LLC is an SEC registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Hightower Securities LLC member FINRA SIPC. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.